Hey friends, I'm Bryant Russ, and in partnership with Christian Schools International, you're listening to Lighting a Fire. Imagine that the measure of faithfulness is becoming the kind of person who loves what God loves for the world. And I, and I think that's why we, we need a, a richer model of what Christian formation and education looks like. Hey everybody, I am thrilled to have Dr. James K.A. Smith on the show today. In addition to being a Calvin University philosophy professor, Dr. Smith is the editor-in-chief of Image, a literary journal on art, faith, and mystery, as well as the author of all kinds of books and articles, including, most recently, You Are What You Love and On the Road with St. Augustine, both of which I have read and highly recommend. Dr. Smith's work always challenges me to think about formation, not just what do I think in my brain to be true, but how am I being shaped as a human being with hopes, fears, and desires into the likeness of Jesus. Whether you're someone invested in Christian education or simply interested in thinking critically about holistic discipleship, I think you'll find today's conversation with Dr. Smith applicable and enjoyable. So Jamie, I grew up within Western evangelical Christianity, and there was always this this sense that the goal was to get people my age to think the right things, you know, about Mm. God, about myself, about the Bible. Um, I, I remember reading Matthew 25 and just assuming the sheep and the goats that, that Jesus was standing there with a clipboard with <laughs> you know a bunch of questions like virgin birth, yes or no. <laughs> so what, what's missing from that model of faith? That's kind of the, the form of Christianity I became a Christian through as well. And it was the measure of discipleship was your ability to regurgitate. Um, content. And what I what I think is worrisome, and what generated actually a lot of my work on this front is, you can pass all of those tests and not love God and what God <laughs> loves. So, so my, my concern is that it's, it's not, of course, that thinking is unimportant. Uh, I mean, because there's, there's another sense in which I, I think a big part of what interests me is trying to fight a forms of anti-intellectualism that characterize um, yeah. uh, especially U.S. evangelicalism. But what, what worries me more is are these forms of Christianity that sort of reduce us to brains on a stick and uh, imagine that the measure of faithfulness is my ability to articulate propositions mm-hmm. rather than becoming the kind of person who loves what God loves for the world. And I, and I think that's why we, we need a, a richer model of what Christian formation and education looks like. Oh, amen. Yeah, you, you talk about in your book, you, we can't think our way to holiness. I love that big quote on the back of the book, you might not love what you think. <laughs> yeah. T- tell me how you came across this revelation in your own life. In some ways, I think it emerged for me as a parent, as Mm -hmm. I was watching. So I I should say just a little bit of biographical context is I I was not raised in a Christian home and became a Christian when I was 18. And so my own journey in faith 
is not like my kid's journey, right? So there, there's, it's just a very different uh, experience where they've been raised in a Christian home, gone to Christian schools their whole lives, you know? Um, and I guess what I was watching and noticing when they were teenagers is, you know, they're going to Christian school all week long. They're going to catechism on Sunday. They're, uh, um, you know, there's been a lot of investment in their Christian education. And yet, it was clear to me that there were cultural forces that were capturing their imagination, hmm. even if their intellect was being fed and fueled um, by, by biblical wisdom. And so it was that gap, that tension between being taught what we ought to believe and know, and, and even what we ought to do is different than becoming the kinds of people who are propelled to live the way God is calling us to live. And I, and I think to close that gap means uh, we need to realize that what makes us really into image bearers of Christ isn't just the intellectual deposit in our minds. It's the recruitment of our affections and the reorientation of the habits of the heart that really shape who we are. In your work, you talk a lot about the word liturgy. How would you describe liturgy to someone who's not familiar even with that term? Well, what is that in just simple words? It's a it's a churchy, religious word that I'm actually trying to stretch and redeem a little bit and try to um, uh, apply much more broadly. So let's say it, liturgy is just a shorthand term for love shaping practices. So so back to your earlier question. The the reason why I might not love what I think is because if you ask me what do I believe I ought to love, right? Or if you ask me what I love and I answer the question out of my intellectual conviction, I'll give you one answer. But if I haven't realized that my heart's affections and longings and desires and orientation is actually much more powerfully shaped by the rhythms and rituals and routines mm. that I've given myself over to. So, so att attending to the way that our heart's hungers are shaped not by intellectual inputs as much as these affective practices, mm. these rhythms, rituals, and routines that are training us on the register of, of the heart, of our hungers. That's what I want to call liturgies. So, so liturgies is just this shorthand term to talk about all kinds of rhythms, rituals, and routines that aren't just something that you do, but do something to you. And um, becoming aware of those is, I think, the beginning of recognizing why there can be this gap between what I say I love and what I live to love. Hmm. You know, when I read your work, Jamie, I think of the biblical prophets and how so often they're calling out idolatry in their communities. And and when I when I read that, you know, I think, oh my goodness, those dummies, like how, how could they go back and forth between gods like that? I mean, isn't it obvious? And yet what you're doing, you're really doing something similar in challenging a kind of idolatry within religious communities. From that lens of worship and idolatry, how do you make sense of something like, I read recently, the average iPhone user touches his or her screen 
2,617 <laughs> times a day. So what's going on there? Yeah. Our, our, our idolatries are much more affective than hmm. intellectual. And, and our idolatries are performed rather than professed. Hmm. So we, we have tended to sort of overly restrict or narrow this category of idolatry to false belief. And, and on that score, I guess there could be all kinds of Christians who could congratulate themselves and say, well, I'm not an idolater because I don't believe in these false gods or whatever. But if we, if we look at the measure of what we devote ourselves to, right? If you think of the register of, of worship is about devotion and these liturgies that we give ourselves over to, well, then I start to, I think it starts to get a lot more uncomfortable for us because mm, we realize that in fact we are devoting ourselves it, it's i i think you're right the prophets are are so powerful in this jeremiah 7 is a great case study where on the one hand um the people of israel say well we look we go to temple every week we go to temple every week the temple of the lord the temple of the lord and he says yeah but the rest of the week you're baking cakes to the queen of heaven mm. and it's <laughs> that kind of tension that we need to own up to Wow. Yeah. I what you said, our idolatries are performed rather than professed. So true. In fact, the, the word faith is challenging. I think when we read it in the biblical text, I often mm. equate that with thinking the right things, as we talked about before. But even as, even maybe a synonym like allegiance is an important yeah. concept to consider. Where do my allegiances lie? Yes, exactly. It's it's uh, we, we know in the New Testament that that Greek word for faith, pistis, is about trust. So it's really... To whom do you entrust yourself, right? Where where are you really giving yourself over? To to what are you pledging allegiance? I think that's exactly the way to think of it. Hmm. So, in the context of education, you had a quote in the in "You Are What You Love." What if education wasn't first and foremost about what we know, but about what we love? Before we even even get to you know, how we can train young people to desire the right things. How do you, do you have any insight as to how we can identify what we really love? Because that's so often happening under the surface. This kind of work is also integral to a Christian education. I talk about, in You Are What You Love, I talk about performing what I call a liturgical audit, where what, what you have to do is find a way to try to push the pause button on your everyday immersion in your life. And, and it's almost like you become an anthropologist of your own everyday environment. And you start to ask yourself, what are the things that I do that are doing something to me? And what story about the good life, about human flourishing, about ultimate ends are carried in those practices? What kind of person do these rituals want me to become? And what do they want me to love? And, and I think the, the first step is just getting over the sense that the things we do are benign just because we haven't thought about them. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, yeah. I don't, I don't want to say that like, oh, you know, you don't want the sort of liturgical equivalent of Frank Peretti novels where there's like a demon behind every door and every mm -hmm. time you step, you know, am I brushing my teeth in a way that's, no, it's not that, but it is, it <laughs> is about putting on a new set of lenses and asking ourselves, what are the rhythms, rituals, and routines that are, aren't just something we do, but do something to us. Now, I, I think it's actually very hard to carry this out simply on our own. 
precisely because we all have blind spots. And those things which are closest to us are the things that are the hardest for us to see. So this is why I think it also has to be a communal endeavor. That is, I need the gift of others to help me see anew the things I take for granted in my life and to measure what those practices love against scripture. Does that, does that make sense? It sounds like a yeah. more complicated than I mean it to be, but it's something, it's almost like you have to practice your way into seeing this. So Jamie, describe how, how would you envision this playing out in a, in a really effective, powerful way in a Christian school setting? So I, I think there's something about a developmentally appropriate learning curve on these things, but I think we do young people an honor when we we give them these kinds of critical tools and capacities sooner rather than later. So I think it's easy to start imagining, especially in middle school and up, exercises in different classes. By the way, it would be really interesting for it to not just happen in Bible classes, but for it to also happen in social science classes, history classes, and so on, where we start asking, we, we basically invite students to become ethnographers of their own context and say, mm-hmm. okay, what are the rituals that you think, what's, what's a ritual that you think is significant in your life or in you know, our society or something? And then you ask them to sort of undertake this analysis. So what, what does it mean that we have such tender, effective relationships with our phones? Or what, are, what, what does the performance ritual of social media do to me? And how is it shaping my understanding of what it is to be human? And to, and to unleash them to do their own analysis. Because one of the things that's become clear to me is our liturgies are highly contextual and generational. Do you know what I mean? So the liturgies that, that have the possibility to deform me are much different than those liturgies that are are possibly deforming a 14-year-old. Though I will say consumerism is ubiquitous and it sort of shapes all of us. But yeah, so I, I, I imagine kinds of exercise. It's almost like, think of it as field work, where we give them the resources to see their everyday environment with these new eyes. I think about even we took out the trash and recycling yesterday and there's a big stack of, of Amazon boxes, you know, that we're constantly yeah, recycling right. more than ever before. And I thought like, wait, what, what's going on here? Yeah. Um, yeah. The cool thing is, is this is, um, it really is a mode of what the Bible calls apocalypse, which, hmm. which of course, apocalypse is not doomsday. Apocalypse is unveiling, uncovering, unmasking. And um, in many ways, this is a kind of apocalyptic exercise where you're, you're trying to sort of unveil the significance, the spiritual stakes of our everyday lives. And, and not all of it, by the way, is meant to demonize what we do every day. There are practices and rituals we take, undertake, which we could say, actually, you know what? This is a rhythm and ritual that I think is its own sort of foretaste of, of the kingdom that God wants us to long for. Uh, but we, we just have to cultivate the critical capacity to not fall into habits, but instead to become intentional about our habits. I'm curious, Jamie, as a parent myself, um, how, how do you cultivate even just 
everything you're describing requires a kind of attentiveness or like being, it's so easy to coast. You know, I've done this before in the shower where 15 minutes go by and I'm like, oh, wow, I'm not even alive right now. Like I'm just here, right? Or drive to school and, and realize that I'm there and I, I don't even know what's happened the last 20 minutes. It's so easy to go through life that way. I'm just curious, even with your own children, how do you how do you encourage that kind of attentiveness, that kind of wakefulness? Uh, any ideas? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I wished I had known this when they were four rather than started thinking about it when they were 14. Do you know what I mean? Like, it felt like, yeah, yeah. all right, we're out of the gate here. One thing I'll say is, in some ways, it's just building this kind of attention into family conversations so that you you just look so it doesn't have to be like i'm going to sit you down for the liturgical audit talk or so (laughs) it's rather you know you just you cultivate this environment of critical capacity at a dinner table when you're driving to grandma's whatever it might be it's almost like training their eyes to see their own environment in different ways now we we haven't gotten to talk about yet i don't know if if we will but there is, of course, a positive constructive side to this, which is how and why the liturgies of the Christian church and the spiritual disciplines of the Christian tradition are their own kind of countermeasures. Mm-hmm. So our gateway as a family was the liturgical calendar and uh, letting the sort of rhythms of a household be uh governed by the church's calendar rather than the hallmark calendar became a mm-hmm. uh, just again, another opening, a portal uh, to become more intentional and aware in that regard. Oh, I love that. And how do you, Jamie, so I'm just thinking about the calendar concept that I feel like calendars are in competition mm. so so regularly in our lives. Um, I think about the, the liturgical calendar I teach in the spring, the gospels, right? Ooh. So we're talking about the, the Passion Week, Holy Week, and, and the cornerstone of our faith. We're celebrating and remembering this week. But I always plan that around spring break. And what yeah. we do is determined by when spring break falls in a given year or when, when Easter happens. And, and frankly, it takes a back row to a different calendar. Is there a way to like actually live into or, or do, those, do the calendars, does one calendar have to win? Is there any way for those to work together? Or how, how do you envision that? Yeah, I, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure that I want to frame it as winning or losing. I, I actually think at at least formative Christian teaching at the intersection of our competing co- calendars is mostly about inviting students to experience the tension, right? Like so, so the worst scenario would be a Christian education in which a student never ever feels the tension between spring break pleasure and Lenten uh, emptying, right? You know, so now are, are, are we going to tell them, no, you can't go to the Florida Keys with your grandma over? No, I mean, there's just, there's certain limits, but it's almost like you want to invite students into the tension because that's what the rest of us experience for the rest of our lives, right? Are the tensions yeah. between our consumerist calendars, our nationalist calendars. We, we, we're not trying to get ourselves out of the world. We're trying to know how to let the story of God in Christ that's rehearsed in the church's uh, calendar, how is that our centering story? And, mm-hmm. and how do we live from that 
even while we still occupy and have to manage our academic calendars, our sports calendars, or whatever it might be. I think it's yeah. it, instead of a being all or nothing or a zero sum game, it's it's a matter of living into the tension. And in doing that, we're teaching discernment, which is a really important concept, right? At least at our high school level, that's a word we use quite a bit. So crucial. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that because I actually think it's probably one of the prime virtues uh, that we need is, is the virtue of prudence and wisdom and discernment. Hmm. So, Jamie, looking back, I appreciate that the, the church has always existed in history, right? I mean, this isn't just something, a pie-in-the-sky vision. Looking back, are there any times or examples that encourage you or, or that you point to to say, oh, man, here's what it looks like to be aware of this tension and to live into the kingdom of God while in mm. the midst of a broader context? Mm. Yeah. Um, well, that's an interesting question. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of the, the importance for contemporary Christians to find ancient friends. And mm. in many ways, I think the disorder and assimilation of the church to the wider dominant culture is a feature of our having forgotten wisdom that the church used to possess. And I think the future of the church in many ways looks like the, the remembering and, and um, recovery of ancient wisdom. So I, I think the era of the church fathers, for example, was a particularly potent era of the church where there was so much reflection on what's required for spiritual formation and spiritual discipline in the midst of an empire that was competing for their affection, devotion, allegiance, as you put it, and so on. And so uh, to go back to um, the desert fathers and mothers, you know, these monastic resources are actually... You don't have to become a monk to be learning a lot about what spiritual formation and discipline looks like from them. Um, mm-hmm. As as you probably know, Augustine is kind of my patron saint, and you should write a book about him. Yeah, right. um, I, I think Augustine has a lot of wisdom uh, for our time about such matters. But I'll also say it's really interesting to go back to John Calvin himself and to hear in his concern for the church, also a concern about how could they develop rhythms of communal Christian living in the midst of their calling to every sphere of creation. So so mm-hmm. Calvin had this vision that Geneva would be what he called a magnum monasterium, a, a giant monastery, not because everybody was poor and single, <laughs> but because he wanted actually the whole city to live into the rhythms of morning and evening prayer and these spiritual disciplines as a way to frame their work as butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers, you know, in, in the rest of the day. And I, I think there's a lot for us to learn about that. What 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 has really undercut, I think, Christian witness and formation is a, a disconnect uh, between Sunday and the rest of the week. and uh, And also a sense that well, if I'm just informed Christianly, I can go into my work the rest of the week knowing what I ought to do. And I think we're learning that is inadequate. Hmm. I heard you speak recently about it was youth ministry, I think was in the context of a conversation about youth ministry, that 
the goal was to entertain you Jesusly and realizing that that, that didn't work. Yeah. And I think a lot of social science data is, is bearing this out that we, we were so worried about young people, quote unquote, leaving the church that we thought creating an entertainment industry so they weren't bored uh, would keep them, but all it did was entertain them. It didn't actually form them, <laughs> you know. So you you just had them as long, and, and you also had uh, basically no win game of just trying to compete with other forms of entertainment. That's that doesn't really turn into lasting, formative shaping of the heart's affections. And and in some ways, I, I know some parents and pastors get nervous about this, but I actually think there can be a lot of significant formation that's going on in young people who look resistant. Um, hmm. oh, and, yeah, and, we, yeah. and we shouldn't confuse either their attendance at entertaining events, nor should we confuse simply their moral conformity with spiritual growth. I think spiritual growth is something different from both of those things. And um, we, we need a more complex approach to what um, youth ministry looks like. Jamie, you talk about doing a Google image search for the word worship. What, what are you trying to expose with that? It, it's, a, it's an interesting way to tap into what our baseline paradigm of worship is. And what, what I think, my hunch is, what, what you'll realize, what you'll discover, we should test this, but if, if you do Google image search for worship, what you will see is, hands raised, audience in the dark, band on stage. It's going to look a lot like a concert is my impression. But what you'll also see, what interests me is, for the most part, the images suggest that worship is this kind of expressive endeavor that I do. And I I just want people to realize that that's, that's actually not the traditional historic way that the church has thought about worship. We we do to, we also by the way, I feel like for 90% of Protestants these days, when they hear the word worship, they just think music. Yeah, right, right. Worship was great today, you know. <laughs> yes, yeah, and exactly what they mean is the band was great or something like that. So they, so they yeah. narrow it to singing. What what I'm trying to get at is worship is not just this bottom up expressivist endeavor that I undertake to show God something. In fact, worship is this full-orbed, communal gathering of the people of God to encounter God who actually is the primary actor and agent in worship. So far from that, that trope you've maybe heard that like when Christians, when we gather in worship, we are performing for an audience of one, which is God. That's actually exactly wrong. I mean, it's just, it, you almost have to invert it. We are not showing God anything. God is calling us into his life. And so worship isn't this bottom-up expressive endeavor on our part. It's actually this encounter where God is acting on us and in us and through us and inviting us into his life. And I think that's kind of a game changer um, for how you think about worship, because then it's not just about the sincerity of your expression. It's about what is the story that's being narrated when we gather in this this communal ritual together. My wife is is 
in terms of personality were very different. She's, she's extremely introverted. And I always appreciated your work on saying, you know, sometimes the, the paradigm of faith is really designed, at least in Western evangelical culture for, for extroverts, that that's real Christianity is it's actually Jesus prefers an, an extroversion, you know, yes, yes. Yeah. And it's, and what's, what's especially heartbreaking about that is when, Young people who aren't wired that way, if if that's the only model of being a Christian they see, they then come to the false conclusion that they can't be Christians. And that's what's yeah, really right, heartbreaking right. about it. Mm, amen. Hey, uh, we're running a little low on time here, Jamie. Would you would you tell us a little bit about what, what are you learning or thinking about or excited about exploring these days? I'm the editor of a journal called Image, which is actually devoted to faith in the arts. And so I also uh, am managing a large grant from the Templeton Foundation for a project at the intersection of faith, art, philosophy, theology. So I'm, I'm really interested in sort of pursuing those themes and questions. It resonates with what we've been talking about, which is uh, I think the imagination is much more the center of the human person than the intellect. And so if that's true, then I want to be able to attend to the arts uh, more broadly. So that's a big part of uh, my work. And then I'm working on a new book called When Are We?, which I know sounds like a weird question, but it's it's <laughs> it's about um, the spirituality of timekeeping, I'm calling it, which is which isn't just the liturgical calendar, but it's it's trying to help Christians have a richer theology of history, and and to be a little bit more sophisticated in how we understand what faithfulness looks like in the now. So those those projects are going to keep me busy and out of trouble, hopefully for a few years. Oh, I can't wait to read. That sounds fantastic. I love it. Great. Thank you. Well, Jamie, I so appreciate you and your work. I've mentioned before, but our school did, did uh, You Are What You Love as a book study a couple of years ago. Oh. And I remember the kind of the revealing, you were you mentioned the word apocalypse, that it reveals. It was it was very much like a, oh, wow. Um, even just that that initial step of getting people to think X, Y, or Z, that's not necessarily the goal, right? You could potentially graduate a class where everyone thinks the right things and yet they, their hearts are far from God. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so to, to consider how are we at work in, in the formation of, of these young people and how are we stewarding the time we have with them uh, toward discipleship? So I, I truly appreciate and I'm grateful to you and, and what your work is producing in our context. Well, I'm honored. And I, I really do think there's such a huge opportunity for Christian education to make a dent uh, in in this question too, right? So that there's there's a sense in which I, the best Christian school teachers have never ever thought it was just about communicating ideas. They are mm. teaching the whole person, and I think it, the more we can become intentional about that and build it into both curriculums explicit and hidden, uh, the the more the richer our graduates will be and better better ambassadors of the coming kingdom. Amen. Jamie, thanks so much for your time. Great to chat with you. Thanks, Brian. If today's conversation got you thinking about how your school can better equip students for a life of whole person discipleship, you're going to want to check out Teaching for Transformation. Teaching for Transformation is an incredible framework from CASE, the Center for the Advancement of Christian Education. And this framework challenges and encourages teachers to envision the deep hopes they have for students and then equip schools to bring these hopes to life. Go to teachingfortransformation.org to find out more.
I'm Bryant Russ, and in partnership with Christian Schools International, this is Lighting a Fire.